Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A grand jury indicts Jack DeShira, the Air National Guard member accused of the Pentagon leak. He remains behind bars as he awaits trial. U.S. government agencies hit in a global cyber attack. CISA says it's working urgently to understand the scope and impact. The Supreme Court delivers a win for Native American tribes today by rejecting a challenge to a 1978 law that aims to protect children's tribal identity. Texas continues to bus illegal immigrants to so-called sanctuary cities throughout the country. Now one more city has been added to the list. And the White House doubling down on its reference to MAGA. That's despite an official warning given to the press secretary for using her official capacity to interfere with an election. We start with some breaking news. Jack DeShira, the Massachusetts Air National Guard member suspected of leaking classified Pentagon files, has been indicted. The Justice Department announced today that a grand jury indicted DeShira on six counts. All are for willful retention and transmission of classified national defense information. He's accused of sharing the info on social media platform Discord beginning around 2022 and continuing around his arrest in April. Each charge carries up to 10 years in prison and a fine of up to $250,000. Deshira will remain behind bars while he awaits trial. And multiple U.S. federal government agencies have been hit in a global cyber attack. No words yet on what groups are behind the attack. The global cyber attack exploits a vulnerability in a widely used file transfer software known as MoveIt. CNN first reported on the attack, citing information from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. The agency said in a statement that it is, quote, providing support to several federal agencies that have experienced intrusions affecting their MoveIt applications. We are working urgently to understand impacts and ensure timely remediation. The director of CISA told MSNBC that they don't expect the attack to have significant impact. CISA didn't identify the agencies that were hit or say exactly how they had been affected. Also, no words on what groups may be behind the attack. Progress, the U.S. firm that owns the MoveIt software, has also urged victims to update their software packages and has issued security advice. Also on Thursday, a cybersecurity firm reported a separate cyber attack by suspected state-backed Chinese hackers. Mandiant, which is owned by Google, said in a report that Chinese hackers breached hundreds of public and private networks globally. Over half of the organizations targeted are in the Americas. The rest are in Europe and the Asia-Pacific region. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. The Supreme Court today upheld a 1978 law that aims to keep Native American adoptees within tribal families. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. A 7-2 Supreme Court majority today upheld a 45-year-old law that keeps Native American children within tribes. The Indian Child Welfare Act came into law after the federal government recognized that American Indian children were being removed from their homes and communities at a much higher rate than non-Native children. But the constitutionality of the law came under fire when a white foster couple from Texas tried to adopt a Native American child. The couple, Chad and Jennifer Brackeen, were challenged by five Native American tribes and the U.S. Interior Department. 
The Brackings and the state of Texas argued the law violated equal protection principles and discriminated on the basis of race because it didn't allow non-Native families to adopt Native children. But the Supreme Court ruled that the petitioners lacked standing to challenge whether the preference provisions in the act violated other constitutional protections. Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who wrote the majority opinion for the court, said the state courts enforced the preference provisions and state agencies placed the children, and that the claims could not be resolved in federal court. In a concurring opinion, Justice Brett Kavanaugh said the race discrimination issue was a serious question that should be decided in a subsequent case. Although the case was ultimately dismissed, the court did conclude that Congress had the power to regulate family law issues and rejected challenges to that authority. The ruling restores Native tribes' reliance on the law to ensure children maintain their cultural heritage and traditions. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Democrats and Republicans get behind a bill to provide a pathway to citizenship for DACA recipients. NTD's Melina Weisskopf hears from both sides of the political spectrum. Compromise may be on the agenda, with some Democrats expressing the need for border solutions and some Republicans expressing the need for immigration reform. We did hear lawmakers expressing a point of view on this issue. That's not your usual set of talking points, and we'll get into that a bit later. But first, what this bill, the American Dream and Promise Act, will do. So it's a time-bound piece of legislation that would provide a pathway to citizenship for people who have been here for a number of years. The bill also addresses illegal immigrants who are under other forms of status, such as the temporary protected status. Here's what Democrats and Republicans who are sponsoring this bill are saying about it. They stood with us in different ways, including serving in our military, we should stand with them. This is bipartisan, it's right, it's strong, and it's time. So I will tell my colleagues, maybe more on my side of the aisle, get ready. Later after votes, we caught up with various lawmakers to hear their thoughts on such a bill. And like you mentioned, there wasn't the usual political rhetoric that we normally hear around this sort of issue. Some Democrats were open to border security and some Republicans were open to a DACA solution. Take a look. We obviously have to have borders that are functional that work. If there is a way to do something that helps these people who are Americans by every other measure. I just have to see the bill. We need to be exporting capitalism. I personally am working with some people from Guatemala to develop businesses down there. We need to work on border issues. I get it. And, and we need to do that. But for the, the DACA kids, we really need a clean path for them. And one argument we've repeatedly heard from Republicans about a pathway to citizenship bill is that they're concerned this type of bill would encourage more illegal immigration, thus making it even more difficult to secure the border. How would you quell that concern from Republicans? Well, as I said, it's a time-limited um, piece of legislation. So if you're not here by a certain date, it doesn't apply to you. A circular flow migration is what we used to have a long time ago, and it essentially allows people to come and to go. So if you make it extremely difficult to cross a border, then people are going to stay. Still, some Republicans are casting doubt that the border security provisions will make it in the end. The last time we cut a deal on immigration was Ronald Reagan in 86. And the Democrats said that they would secure the border, and they never did. 
But overall, the question of whether this type of bill could actually pass during this Congress comes down to leadership. Is this something that Speaker McCarthy would be willing to push through a GOP-led House? And also, this comes at a time when the GOP-led a committee on the Homeland Security just launched a five-phase investigation into DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over what they call his inability or unwillingness to secure the border. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. In a controversial move, Texas has sent its first busload of illegal immigrants to Los Angeles. But the mayor of L.A. called the action a despicable stunt. NTD's Jason Perry has the update. Recently, the Los Angeles City Council voted to draft a so-called sanctuary city policy, and it could eventually become municipal law, making L.A. the next so-called sanctuary city. And less than a week after the vote on Wednesday, Texas dropped off the first busload of illegal immigrants in the City of Angels. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said this in a statement. Los Angeles is a major city that migrants seek to go to, particularly now that its leaders approved its self-declared sanctuary city status. Abbott also repeated his reasoning for relocating the illegal immigrants, saying, Our border communities are on the front lines of President Biden's border crisis, and Texas will continue providing this much-needed relief until he steps up to do his job and secure the border. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass said the city learned of the group's trip while the bus was en route, and nonprofit groups met the passengers at Union Station around 4 p.m. Around 40 illegal immigrants were dropped off, including families with children. They were provided care and support services at St. Anthony's Croatian Catholic Church, according to officials and service providers. Upon their arrival, Mayor Bass said this on Twitter. Shortly after I took office, I directed the city departments to begin planning for an event like this. This did not catch us off guard. We are now executing our plan. And she added this. Los Angeles is not a city motivated by hate or fear, and we absolutely will not be swayed or moved by the petty politicians playing with human lives. This comes a week after Florida flew a separate group of illegal immigrants from Texas to Sacramento. California Governor Gavin Newsom called the action inhumane. Since April 2022, Texas has transported more than 21,600 illegal immigrants, and they've been bused to so-called sanctuary cities like New York, D.C., Chicago, Philadelphia, Denver, and now L.A. The White House continues to use the term MAGA despite getting a warning about trying to influence an election. What's the latest and what exactly is the Hatch Act? NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. According to a latest report by Axios, White House Deputy Press Secretary Andrew Bates sent out a memo on Wednesday criticizing what he calls MAGA windfall and MAGA tax welfare. But that comes just days after the Office of Special Counsel issued an official warning to Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre saying that she violated the Hatch Act by using the term MAGA Republicans to generate opposition to Republican candidates in her official capacity. Congressional Republicans ranging from the right MAGA. Uh, when he talks about what MAGA Republicans are doing, he's mentioned that before. Republicans and MAGA Republicans voted on this bill. Specifically, the watchdog group says the press secretary violated the Hatch Act prohibition against using her official authority or influence for the purpose of interfering with or affecting the result of an election. But the press secretary defended herself this week by saying this. 
So basically, it is uh, retroactive, right? The actions were retroactive after I had uh, made the comments. We did not know their opinion. But it's also notable that Hatch Act violations are not uncommon. At least 13 officials under the Trump administration were also accused of violating the Hatch Act. And there's actually little that the Office of Special Counsel can do except for just issuing warnings. So it remains to be seen if the current White House will actually change course when it comes to using the term MAGA. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. Turning to some good news for Biden, he's touting what he calls a win for his crackdown on junk fees. The big ticketing companies Live Nation and Ticketmaster have agreed to show customers all fees up front instead of late in the checkout process. This is, uh, this is a win for consumers in my view and proof that our crackdown on junk fees has real momentum. But there's more to do to address the problem of online ticketing uh, to for te- to, excuse me, to address the problems in online ticketing industry and to get junk fees ac- across all industries. I want to thank members of Congress who are working on legislation to address these junk fees in ticketing, lodging, and other industries. Biden admits this only makes so-called junk fees more transparent. He's asking Congress to pass consumer protections that would help cut them. The Senate this week confirming a new federal judge. That's after Republicans strongly opposed the nominee, citing alleged extreme views. NTD's Arian Pastar spoke with a legal expert to find out how the confirmation could affect our legal system. The Senate on Wednesday confirmed lawyer Dale Ho to become a federal district judge in Manhattan. Ho works with the American Civil Liberties Union. Republicans strongly opposed the nomination. I don't think he's capable of making the transition to being a nonpartisan, objective uh, federal judge. Hans van Spakowski is a legal fellow with the Heritage Foundation. He calls the Senate confirmation one of the worst decisions the legislative body ever made. The vote ended 50 to 49, with Democratic Senator Joe Manchin being the only Democrat voting against the nomination. Manchin later said in a statement, Mr. Ho's prior inflammatory statements make me doubt whether he can be impartial. At a 2021 Senate hearing, Ho was asked about a radical statement he allegedly made. Republicanism is an anti-democratic virus. No, Senator, I don't believe I've used those words. Okay, you're under oath now. Ho said he'll serve as a fair, neutral and impartial arbiter of the law. Now, in general, what impact can it have when a biased lawyer from either side of the political spectrum becomes a federal judge? What's well, terrible, to be sure. I mean, it, honestly, everyone comes to it with their own set of ideologies. But what we want in a jurist is to be able to put those aside and to look at the facts and the law of a case and to apply them in a neutral manner. That's a dangerous thing. And it's certainly dangerous in the federal judiciary where they have lifetime appointments. Daniel Schmidt is a legal expert with Liberty Council. This marks Biden's fifth confirmed judicial nominee and the second one who worked with a civil union before becoming a judge, which is uncommon. What do you make of Biden's nomination so far? I think they're all radical, uh, and that's, ra- that's across the board. I have not seen one uh, that I would support. Van Spakowski indicates that he thinks similarly about Biden's nomination so far. I don't think they're going to be able to divorce their political opinions uh, from being a judge and having to rule 
According to the White House, all of the nominees are extraordinarily qualified, experienced and devoted to the rule of law and our Constitution. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Coming up, Bud Light is no longer the top selling beer in the U.S. after a nationwide boycott. How did consumer voices get the attention of corporate America? And Starbucks is in the spotlight for a case that began with alleged bias against one race and ended with finding discrimination against another. Find out more after the break. Welcome back. Bud Light is no longer the number one beer in America, losing its spot after a nationwide boycott over the brand's partnership with a transgender influencer. What made consumers react so powerfully? And what will America's corporations learn from the boycott? Earlier, we spoke with NTD's Bo Davidson, host of The Bo Show, which airs on NTD Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Bo covers where culture meets art and politics. Bo Davidson, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tiffany. So, Bo, you've been following this story. How did we get here where Bud Light lost its crown? Well, I think it starts with the philosophy, Tiffany, um, of woke corporatism. Uh, It means to go against your consumers. It means to inject diversity wherever you can. It's to forget the consumer to go against the customer base to not listen to them and to inject this philosophy. And we know that, you know, Bud Light's VP of marketing was Alyssa Heinerschneid. And if you listen to her podcast, and I watched all the whole hour of it, she's talking about basically shirking what Bud Light was and making it something entirely different. So they're foregoing what made them successful and trying to make them something into something they're not. And on that note, why do you think the boycott took off as it did? Well, uh, a couple of reasons, Tiffany. I think it's because it had numbers and because it had action. Uh, People exercise their consumer choices and their consumer voices, choices and voices. I think that's why it worked. And we're not talking about just a few people. This was a lot of people that exercised their consumer choice and voice. Yes, Kid Rock did what he did. uh, Travis Tritt did what he did. But the bottom line is they were slapping their regular beer drinking consumer in the face. We're not talking about just the casual beer drinker, the one that occasionally drinks Bud Light on the weekend. We're talking about people who drink this stuff every day. They're the ones that got mad. And when you tick off that core consumer base, they're going to exercise their right to say, I'm done. And speaking of that, what did we learn from this saga, especially in terms of the consumers? Well, I think that corporations have to listen, Tiffany. They have to listen. They're not listening to their customers. You know, Alyssa Heinerschneid was not listening. The CEO, Michael Dukaris, isn't listening. He still isn't listening. You know, I was reading, he blamed this on social media misinformation. That's what he thinks is the reason for this. But the bottom line is the CEO had a choice and a chance. His choice was, I'm going to go forward with this plan. We're going to go ahead and honor Dylan Mulvaney with this can. We don't think it's going to be a big deal. So he had that choice and he exercised that choice and it bit him in the tail, as you can see. But he also had a chance. The chance was to rectify this and to tell Bud Light consumers, we're sorry. Okay. We made a mistake. We're not trying to offend anyone. We want to be inclusive. At the same time, we don't want to exclude you, the Bud Light consumer that we've had for decades. And that's exactly what they did. So for Ducaris to come out and say, 
you know, oh, it's social media misinformation. It's BS. I don't believe it at all. So what corporations need to do is to listen, and they're not listening. And now that conservatives or anyone who doesn't want politics mixed in with their shopping have been voting with their wallet in a way, can we expect to see more of this with other brands? I do. I think so. Um, we were seeing it with Target. You know, Tiffany, I was covering uh, about a week or so ago, went to downtown Miami, and there was a, a boycott Target uh, protest that was going on, which includes the number one song on iTunes called Boycott Target. That is uh, an anomaly in and of itself. It's showing that there is a power of, again, voice and choice. Um, it's happening with Kohl's. Uh, I actually get these things on my phone. You can sign up to get woke alerts. They'll send you a text when something woke happens in a company. I've seen it for recently for Bank of America, NASCAR, Chipotle, General Motors. And honestly, Tiffany, I did it too. Um, you may have seen a story about a month or so ago where the Florida Panthers were going to have me on to sing uh, for Pride Night. And then they removed me as the singer because I wasn't gay. Uh, it was blatant discrimination. So I decided to use my voice uh, to amplify what had happened uh, for the, what they did. And I decided not to support them anymore. And, you know, they lost the Stanley Cup. It's unfortunate for them. Uh, but I exercised my voice. And so I think that's what you're going to see is more people standing up to this nonsense. Bo Davidson, thank you so much for joining us. A federal jury in New Jersey has awarded over $25 million to a former Starbucks manager. The white manager accused the company of firing her as a racial scapegoat. This after the arrest of two black men at a Philadelphia shop. Shannon Phillips worked for Starbucks for 13 years. She sued the coffee chain giant in 2019. She claimed that she had nothing to do with the racially charged incident and believes she was unfairly punished in an attempt to quell public outrage. The incident took place in 2018. Two men were asked to leave the coffee shop after sitting at a table without ordering anything. The two said that they were waiting for a business associate. A store manager called the police on them and they were later escorted out of the coffee shop in handcuffs. The video of the arrests sparked protests and vandalism. Federal jurors sided with Phillips. They found Starbucks fired her because she was white. Starbucks did not respond to a request for comment on the verdict. The latest data tells us that 42% of Americans are obese. At the same time, ads for weight loss drugs like Ozempic are flooding social media. NTD's Faye Quarter takes a closer look at the phenomenon. Ads for weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Wegovy have flooded social media. This comes as America's obesity rate continues to climb. It's a disease in the same way that heart disease or kidney disease or diabetes are a disease with a successful and safe treatment. So if we take away the stigma of laziness and of lack of motivation from people who suffer from obesity, more patients will seek treatment for that. Nick Saker is a surgeon at the New York Bariatric Group. He's been working in medical weight loss for over 20 years and has frequently prescribed Ozempic and Wegovy. He says being overweight isn't all about laziness. For many, it's a serious health problem that may need to be treated. Saker believes all the weight loss drug ads may draw more people toward treatment, which will benefit them. One major uh, way that these drugs work is by slowing down the gut. So the food takes longer to empty from your stomach, which can give you a sense of satiety for longer. 
The other way that they work is in dealing with the metabolic syndrome, decreasing the patient's hunger and cravings, uh, and treating diabetes, which in itself can lead to cravings for sugar and other high-carb meals. Side effects may include some nausea and bloating, but this usually subsides after two weeks. For people with a weight problem, Saker strongly recommends seeing a weight loss specialist. There is no one-size-fits-all approach, and a doctor with a lot of experience can get them on the right program. But there are common tips on how to be healthy. Good quality sleep. You want to be going to bed at a reasonable hour. 10 till to 6 is good because that, that time before midnight really helps your whole adrenal system. Um, we want to be hydrating with, with good, pure, filtered water. Um, we want to be moving consistently throughout the day. We, uh, we have a very sedentary lifestyle nowadays, and, we, and, and just good to kind of get up and keep walking and keep moving. Carolyn Nicholas is a certified health coach at the Able Health app. She says taking drugs isn't the only solution and that we should work on our habits and behaviors to maintain our overall health. Faye Quarter, NTD News. How is the Federal Reserve's interest rate decision impacting Americans, and what can you do to protect your money? NTD Business's Don Ma reached out to financial information platform Bankrate.com for more. And we have here principal U.S. economy reporter Sarah Foster at Bankrate.com. So we had the Fed uh, decision yesterday, and on the website, Bankrate.com, you wrote an article about uh, 11 financial things to do after the decision yesterday. We didn't get a hike. But I, I want some context to that article. Maybe provide us with some backdrop. What's the economy like? What's happening to the consumer? Yeah, well, it's it's a monumentous occasion here at the Fed because they've been hiking rates for 15 months, uh, 10th consecutive rate hikes. They broke that streak yesterday in June, deciding to leave rates in the target range of five to five and a quarter. And so I think, you know, the context, what this means for consumers is that they might maybe be breathing a sigh of relief, but the celebration won't last for long. So what, what's the impact on, on the consumer with this uh, Fed funds rate being at around 5%? Well, that's the highest in nearly 16 years. And so what that's translating to for the consumer is higher borrowing costs. Uh, for 13 weeks, we've really seen credit card rates stay at this record high level. We've also really saw that home equity lines of credit, they're the highest in decades, as well as car loans. Consumers have been dealing with high inflation. Their wages haven't been keeping up with it. But on top of that, we have this new era of inflation, which is brought on by these elevated borrowing costs. And even though the Fed decided not to raise interest rates, those borrowing costs are still going to stay at those levels. And they could even nudge up a little bit higher as we kind of process what happened with the three bank failures earlier this year. And just to put things into perspective, maybe you can give us some examples of the impact on people's wallets. I know you mentioned credit cards just now. Yeah, I think uh, it's really important here for consumers when uh, you kind of look at these borrowing rates, how much they've risen. Since credit card rates are kind of rising to this record high now for so long, what that means for consumers is the, the, the balances that they keep on those credit card rates, that's going to cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars, potentially, depending on how much of a credit card balance they, they carry with them. So I think, you know, the bottom line for consumers is the most important step you can take right now is really making sure that you eliminate that credit card date debt and even other high interest variable rate loans. 
anytime the Fed raises rates, you're kind of a sitting duck for pain from those rate hikes. And thankfully, since the Fed didn't raise interest rates, you know, this week, you might have a little bit of time to figure out what to do. But again, the picture doesn't change that much. And so what we really want to show is that it's important to find ways to eliminate those forms of debt. So out of the 11 things, I, I know you mentioned some of them already, but w which one do you think it's the most important? I think going forward, the most important step Americans can take is just making sure that higher rates aren't hurting their wallets, because when inflation is already costing you lots of lots more money than it would have before the pandemic, higher interest rates also now are too. So it's just really important to make sure that when you look at those credit card balances, if you're carrying any find a way to take advantage of a 0% transfer offer with a balance transfer card. And of course, you know, the elephant in the room is that the Fed could cause a recession by all of these interest rate hikes. Another kind of interesting point from the meeting yesterday is that the Fed is expecting the economy to remain resilient. And many uh, Fed officials, including Chair Powell himself, uh, has talked about the hope for a soft landing. But of course, if we do enter a recession, as many economists have been forecasting, balance transfer offers could dry up. So essentially what that means is that it's important to take advantage of this now to make sure that you don't miss out on the opportunity later. All right, thank you so much today, Sarah. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Great to be here. Coming up, after months of rising tensions between the U.S. and China, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading to Beijing. How will the visit pan out? NTD speaks to a foreign policy expert for analysis. And a fishing boat carrying migrants capsized and sank off the coast of Greece. Search and rescue operations are underway as hundreds have yet to be found. We'll bring you the details after the break. Welcome back. Turning our attention to China, where is U.S.-China policy really headed? And how will Blinken's trip to Beijing play out after several months of rising tensions between the two nations? Will both sides overcome mutual mistrust or end up in a deeper divergence? We sat down with Alex Gray, senior fellow from American Foreign Policy Council and former deputy assistant to the president, for more. Alex Gray, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me back, Tiffany. So Secretary of State Antony Blinken is traveling to China. It, uh, we're, not, we're not sure who he's meeting with yet, according to the State Department. Meanwhile, Microsoft's Bill Gates is reportedly meeting with China's Xi Jinping in China. How do we read these two very different trips? Yeah, I think it's important to, to realize that international diplomacy requires operating from a position of strength. And right now, the United States, I think, is reasonably perceived by Beijing as, as operating from a position of weakness. And the reason I'm so concerned about that is President Biden and Secretary Blinken have continuously acted as if a meeting with Xi Jinping or with whoever the, the Chinese counterpart is, uh, is the most important thing on their agenda. And, and the appearance of the United States almost begging for an audience with Xi Jinping, while the CCP's international behavior continues to be malign, continues to be so uh, egregious in so many ways, um, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's 
the unsafe maneuvering in the Taiwan Straits. Whether, I mean, go down the list of, of the, the, of course, the spy balloon. Now what we're seeing in Cuba, you go down the list of behavior and it's totally, uh, it just doesn't make sense to have the United States appearing to be begging for an audience with the general secretary of the Communist Party. And so I, I would really like to see the United States go back to a framework where we speak to the Chinese Communist Party when needed, uh, but we do that from a position of unassailable American strength. And there are plenty of, of policies we can undertake to fix our international position in a way that would strengthen our hand rather than going to Beijing hat in hand, asking, you know, as a, a, a supplicant. And that's, um, that, that image isn't just, you know, Tiffany, that image isn't just something that the CCP is, is viewing, our allies and our partners are viewing it too. And they're seeing the United States uh, begging for an audience with Xi Jinping as a, a weak, a weakened America. And that's, that's deeply concerning. On the Microsoft point, there are reports and arguments that China wouldn't be where it is today without the help of Microsoft, especially in AI development. But it seems it comes down to almost two different rule books or playbooks that the regime plays by and the U.S. plays by. So given that, where do we go from here? What must the U.S. do? Well, we have to make very clear that the, the framework, the paradigm of the last 30 years um, where the United States is allowing technology transfer. The United States is, is sharing uh, far too much of our intellectual property and our proprietary data with the Chinese Communist Party. Um, I, I thought that there was a, a, a broader consensus in Washington that that had outlived its, its time. Uh, unfortunately, there are still private sector actors who have not, Microsoft I think is one of them, who have not realized that uh, trying to operate in the national security realm in the United States while operating in the economic realm in China are not compatible. We're far past that point. Um, and I think the US government is gonna need to make a, a pretty stark, um, a stark decision, which is if you wanna operate as a trusted provider for the U.S. military, for the U.S. intelligence community, for, for U.S. economic security, um, you have to make a decision about whether that's where you want to be or do you want to be doing what Microsoft is doing? Do you want to be operating um, as, a, as a partner of the Chinese Communist Party? And I think that those are, those are mutually exclusive decisions. And um, that's, that's going to confront, uh, confront them, in, I hope, in the very near future. Sounds like it comes down to individual choices on all levels. I, I do think that companies, as we, we go forward in this international, uh, in this, this great power competition, uh, companies are going to have to make difficult decisions, and the U.S. government's going to have to make difficult decisions. Um, but what the U.S. government can do is provide very clear uh, expectations for the private sector about what sort of behavior is acceptable and what sort of behavior is not. And I think the cloud security example is, is one where we should be drawing a very bright line. AI is another one. AI is an absolute national security asset, um, and we need to be investing in American capabilities to have national security focused AI uh, skills. And any company that is, is trying to, to partner um, you know, with adversaries on that, that's, that's a real concern. And so we need to be very focused on 
those companies in our tech sector who are trying to build an indigenous AI capacity here that rivals anything produced in China. Um, and, and companies who are not part of that agenda, I think uh, the government needs to send a very strong signal that that's not, that's not the direction we want to go. Alex Gray, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Tiffany. Next, a tragic incident off the coast of Greece. A fishing boat carrying hundreds of migrants capsized and sank while on its way to Europe, making it one of the deadliest shipwrecks in the region this year. NDD's Sam Wong brings us the latest details. A rescue search underway. Coast Guards, Navy, vessels and aircrafts scoring the seas off Greece as hundreds of migrants are still missing. The ship sank about 50 miles off the southern coastal town of Pylos, near the deepest spot of the Mediterranean Sea. As of now, at least 79 are dead. Authorities fear that hundreds of others might still be trapped below deck on the fishing boat. Reports suggest that between 400 and 750 people were on board. And among them, only a little more than 100 had been brought ashore. But because there is no concrete number of how many were on board, we hear about 750 people. This is something to be, you know, cross-checked, confirmed at the later stage. The survivors include Egyptians, Syrians, Pakistanis, Afghans and Palestinians, mostly men and a few minors. 25 survivors ranging in age from 16 to 49 were hospitalized with hyperthermia or fever. And many were left in a state of shock. People are still in shock. They are trying to give some details now about their relatives, their friends that were in the boat and they, they cannot find them. Around 70 survivors were transferred by the Coast Guard to the Greek port city of Kalamata. They were provided with sleeping bags and blankets while paramedics set up tents outside for anyone who needed first aid. Following the incident, Greece has declared three days of national mourning. The nation's opposition leader visited shipwreck survivors and urged the European Union to change its migration policy. I want to say there are huge responsibilities, huge political responsibilities, with the migration policy that Europe has been following for years. A migration policy that turns the Mediterranean, our seas, into watery graves. People aboard the ship reportedly turned down early offers for assistance, saying they wanted to reach Italy. Experts believe the boat may have sunk after running out of fuel or suffering engine trouble. According to the United Nations, nearly 1,000 people have died or gone missing in the Mediterranean this year. As the search and rescue continues, death toll is likely to rise. The Coast Guard said that the search operation will continue for as long as needed. Sam Wong, NTD News. Health authorities in Europe are now recommending the COVID-19 vaccine for kids under five years old. NTD's France correspondent David Vives spoke to an expert on biostatistics who says the data isn't good enough to support this. The European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control and the European Medicine Agency have updated their guidelines regarding COVID vaccines. The EU agencies call for new vaccination campaigns this fall with a focus on the XBB COVID strain. Critically, they now recommend the vaccine for children under age 5. This would include two to three doses of pediatric vaccine. According to the top vaccine manufacturer Pfizer, the efficacy of the vaccine for children is around 80%. Over six months to five years, we are told the vaccine is 80.3% effective. However, you see statistics require a certain number of cases for me to be able to see a difference between treatment groups. So there's no statistically proven efficacy over the two to five years, nor the six months to two years. 
But there is a positive one overall because of the addition of the numbers. Christine Coton is a biostatistician. Earlier this year, she published an extensive study on Pfizer's clinical trial and says there is no proven efficacy of the vaccine in children. The Pfizer clinical trial data were supposed to remain secret for 75 years, but a federal court ordered the manufacturer to publish it last year. Coton says overall the Pfizer clinical trial is the worst she's ever seen in her 23-year career. What's more, there are more severe cases among the children who were vaccinated than among those who received the placebo. The fact that the health authorities accepted an authorization based on catastrophic results like that is absolutely lamentable. It should never have been accepted. According to official EU data, 14% of European children aged under five years have received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up, a memorial in Mount Monte, California, closes a heavy-hearted year for the local police department. NTD was at the ceremony for two fallen officers. And in golf news, more fallout from the PGA merger, as the Department of Justice is now reviewing the matter. We'll have that story and more coming up. Welcome back. It's difficult to say goodbye, especially to those charged with keeping their community safe. Last night, hundreds of people in El Monte, California, came together to pay tribute to two law enforcement officers they will never forget. NTD's Christina Corona shares the heartbreaking story. It's been a year since two El Monte police officers were killed in the line of duty. One year later, we attend a memorial service to honor those brave men who were simply trying to protect and serve the city they grew up in. Family members of the two slain officers spoke from the heart and told us a bit about who these gentlemen were. It's a simple reminder that Michael was more than just a man with a badge. At 19, he began working as a police cadet at El Monte Police Department. His goal? to break the cycle of poverty, violence, and affiliation. I didn't just lose my husband. I lost my co-parent, my protector, my best friend, the person that I looked forward to seeing every single day to decompress with. The grief experienced by family members is overwhelming, but it's also complicated for the friends and colleagues who are left behind, as Lieutenant Aram Cho with the Almani Police Department explains to us. Since it's been about a year, uh, we've had a mixed bag of emotions. We have some people really reeling in the moment in a positive way. Um, although we've had some officers uh, really feel emotional about this, we came together and really rallied, uh, utilizing community support, but really the support of our brothers and sisters to make this a positive event and, and memorialize our brothers in a positive way. Two badge numbers, 565 and 706, will never be used again by the Almani Police Department. But Chief Jake Fisher tells us the men who wore those badges will never be forgotten. The city supported the families of the two fallen officers by tending to many of their financial concerns. As part of the tribute to the two fallen officers, there was a flyover involving several law enforcement helicopters. 
A full year later, saying farewell to two fallen police officers is still difficult. However, the Almani Police Department's memorial was well attended by family, city officials, and community members who came out to show their support for a department still grieving a tragic loss. Christina Corona, NTD News, Almani. Now moving to sports news, we bring in NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, turning to golf news, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the DOJ is now getting involved. They're opening a review of the alliance between the PGA Tour and the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund. What's going on there? Well, you know, you said it correctly there. You know, originally when this deal was reported, it was said to be between the PGA and Live Golf. But it's really between the PGA and the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund, which funds Live Golf. Now, the news today comes just a day after a couple of U.S. senators had wrote to Merrick Garland urging him to review this matter. Now, their first, they had two concerns. Their first was, does this violate U.S. antitrust laws? Uh, but I think their second one was even more pressing. You know, does this help the Saudi Arabia government in their efforts to sports wash their egregious human rights record? And Dave, what has been the PGA's response to all this? Well, PGA Commissioner Jay Monahan, he wrote a letter Friday to Congress and he basically said, you know, your inactions were to blame for this. And I think what he's trying to say is that we had to do this deal or there's going to be a whole lot of sports washing going on with Liv because we could not keep up with this um, player bidding that was going on. And really, the, the PGA couldn't. I mean, they were in the impossible position of trying to get more funds from their sponsors, while at the same time, their sponsors were seeing a declining product on the field every time another golfer defected to Liv. Uh, meanwhile, Liv, though, they, I don't know how long they could keep this up. They had spent billions for these players, and they had almost no revenue to show for it because, of course, no, no sponsor is wanting to touch that human rights record. Now, the, the second part is, the, uh, is this a monopoly, which would be a, a new topic for sports because this really hasn't been applied to any sports organizations. Could you say this about the NFL when they merged with the AFL 60 years ago, or the NBA when they merged with the ABA, or even the American League and the National League coming together? So I think the whole sports world will be watching this one. And Dave, switching gears a little, moving on to some interesting sports memorabilia news. A pair of Michael Jordan autographed shoes sold for more than a million dollars yesterday. What can you tell us about them? Well, these are from Jordan's famous flu game back in the 97 finals. I mean, this game is right up there with his 63-point record performance in the playoffs against Boston that was set like a decade earlier. As the story goes, he had promised these to a ball boy before this game, in a, you know, as a thanks for, get, for running some errands for him. Now, this, you know, by the way, Jordan almost routinely donated his shoes after every single game. He was notorious for that. So this wasn't really anything new. But for this, ball, for this game, the ball boy, I believe, had run some tickets to Will Call for him. I think they had said in some other games, he had, I think Jordan had a request, he wanted some applesauce or something before the games. So the ball boy asked about his shoes, and Jordan said, yeah. So you know, after this historic game, he comes back into the locker room, as the story goes, and the Bulls equipment manager comes to get the shoes, and he says, no, these are going to that kid over there, and points to him. Now that kid in 2013 then sold these shoes for $100,000, and now, <laughs> 10 years later, they've appreciated to nearly one and a half million.
Dave, thank you so much. Always great hearing from you. Thanks, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.